Hey, this is Levi, and I wanna thank you so much for joining us for this message from Fresh Life Church. It's summertime, and we know you're hitting that hammock, you're out in the canoe, you're lying by the lake, and you're jumping on that airplane for that last minute trip. And one of the things you gotta figure out is what book are you gonna throw in that beach bag? What book are you gonna bring with you? Well, we're here to help because we've picked some amazing books and invited the authors to come out to Fresh Life and to speak, giving us kind of a, a book report on the message that lit them up so much that they needed to write this book out. And uh, so I hope you'll enjoy this message from a few of my friends speaking, uh, helping us figure out our summer reading. so phenomenal. In fact, a couple of people have reached out online just even from the uh, advertisements about the summer series and they're like, oh, we're so excited you're coming. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. I'm excited that I'm coming. Uh, I've been following your pastors and I've been following the church for a number of years. And uh, I've always had so much respect for Pastor Levi and Jenny and what they're building here at Fresh Life. But now my husband and I are church planners. And so I'm like stalking y'all. So to be able to be here is, is very, very uh, phenomenal. Um, also, though, in full candor and disclosure, a little intimidating because uh, Pastor Levi, I mean, and Jenny, the staff, like, they're just so put together, um, and they're just so pastoral, and they have great, like, svelte biceps, and I'm like, I can't even get my life together. Like, how could I be a church planner with this audacious goal of 10 churches in 10 years reaching 10,000 people if I could barely say no to carbs, okay? Like... One day, y'all, one day my life is going to be together. I'm going to have my life be put together. Um, it's just not anywhere recent. Thank you. Thanks for the grace. Um, because, you guys, I, 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 how can I be a church planner if I can't even remember basic things? Like, I'm talking, like, basic things. Uh, in fact, um, I forget something every single time that I travel. Uh, significant things. In fact, I left my phone in the car before coming here to Fresh Life. Just bless my heart on all levels. <laughs> Uh, but I think the worst one was I was traveling to Texas for a conference and I was super nervous and I was on this run of just forgetting a bunch of things and I said, not today, Satan. I'm going to make sure I am prepared. So I made a list. Like I actually made a packing list. I color coordinated it. I packed up my entire bag and then I woke up the next morning and then I unpacked the bag and then I repacked the bag to make sure. Nope. No, nope, I'm going to get my life together. So I, I made my way down to LAX, Los Angeles International Airport. I check in. They're like, congratulations, Mrs. Oltoff. You have a first-class upgrade. Hey, won't he do it? Come on, Jesus. Yes. So I'm sitting there like bad and bougie in first class, you know, sipping my sparkling water like, oh, hello, how are you? And uh, I was ready. I had my notes. And I reached into my, uh, to my purse to grab my Bible and my notes, and I realized my bag is just way too heavy, way too light. Usually it's heavier than that. And I searched around and fished around and realized in sheer panic, I grabbed my phone and I called my husband. And I said, babe, it's an emergency. I don't know what to do. You have to help me. And he said, oh my gosh, Bianca, what happened? What happened? I said, babe, I forgot 
makeup on the counter. Here's the thing, I know for all the natural, like, fresh life supermodels that can come here with like no makeup and still look beautiful, like, that doesn't feel like a tragedy, but I wear makeup like RuPaul, okay? Um, I feel like contouring is my spiritual gift, and when I wear my fake eyelashes, it's like the anointing comes on, and when I blink, I want you to feel the Holy Spirit, okay? So this was an emergency. And then my husband, sweet, sweet husband, he's the real Christian one of the family. He says, B, what if the Lord wants you to be natural? I'm sorry, what? Get behind me, Satan. This is spiritual warfare. Are you kidding me? And here's the thing. Uh, that doesn't feel like trauma. But in therapeutic terms, there is capital T trauma. Trauma that has grave lasting detriment to our heart, mind, and soul. And then there's lowercase t trauma, which are irritants, aggravators of life. And forgetting your makeup isn't a big trauma, but when your mom is diagnosed with not one, but two forms of brain cancer, that's capital T trauma. When my grandmother went in for a routine checkup at the hospital and ended up tragically passing away, it's capital T trauma. When I was five years old and caught in between a, a shootout between the local police and a, a, a local gang lord, and my mom threw her body over us to protect us, that's capital T trauma. And even though my life story and situations are different from yours, we all experience these moments in life where there's loss and there's tragedy and there's heartbreak and capital T trauma or lowercase t trauma, we're left to sit and scratch our heads saying, my life stinking sucks. But what about if we came to a point in our life where we realized that even though my life sucks for this moment, I don't have to because my God is with me. How would it change our perspective in our life? I once heard uh, an ancient Hebrew scholar talk about this fascinating concept. Uh, she said that in ancient Hebrew, there is no word for tragedy. Why? Because ancient Hebrews did not believe that if a situation wasn't redeemed, then God wasn't done. So they refused to have a word for tragedy. And so what I want to do is go through an Old Testament book, uh, the book of Ruth. It's one of my very favorite books. And we're going to use this character, Ruth, as our guide uh, as we go through to see, hey, when life sucks, how do we respond to this? And my hope in this short time is that we get to see our life played out in the pages of their life as well. So if you brought your Bible, turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. And I'm going to just be peppering our conversation today um, throughout the book of Ruth. It's only four chapters. I highly encourage you to read it. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because it is amazing. My hope is that if today's sermon is just like an amouge bouche, a little tight, a little taste for you to get hungry, for you to get thirsty for the word of God. So in Ruth chapter one, we start off with this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, we're going to come back to them, two sons, went to live for a while in a country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the, two, uh, and the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion died, also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. We have an interesting set of characters that just roll onto the scene here. And uh, 
The two primary characters that we're going to be looking at today are Ruth and Naomi. Uh, for the note takers and the word nerds in here, the name Naomi means sweet. It means pleasant. And the name Ruth, as we will discover, means friendly. In Hebrew culture, you were given a name that was represent, a representation of who you were, either now the situation you're born into or the destiny that awaits you. And these two women, Ruth and I, we have experienced grave loss and devastation. I mean, their dreams and provision are buried six feet under, three times over. Father-in-law dead, brother-in-law dead, husband dead. The three women are like, our life totally sucks. Now, Naomi, she's Jewish, but Ruth? Ruth is not a Jew. Ruth is a Moabitess. And listen, I'm a word nerd, okay? Like I memorized all 66 books of the Bible at the age of six, okay? Well, not the books, the book titles, just to clarify. And um, Moab, for context, is not a place where good Jews lived. You would not want to be a good Jew and live in Moab. The city was started from an ancestral relationship between a dad and a daughter, and it just spiraled into sin from there. Think of it as a cross between, like, Las Vegas and Bangkok. Like, it's a turn up, beautiful people, I mean, debauchery. I mean, it is, it is not a good place for a good Jew. Well, Naomi's son had married Ruth, and Ruth was a Moabitess. We're going to find out in her story that she's scrappy. She's a hustler. And if she's a Moabitess, you know, she got a crazy family, you know, like that's not what you want to inherit at your Thanksgiving dinner. So in my mind's eye, she's basically like a biblical Cardi B. Okay, so get in your mind's eye. You know, she got a little attitude, maybe she got like a hoop earrings or something. And, and the, I, we can't get into the full text, but in, in chapter one towards the middle, like Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, the daughter-in-law, left without their husbands. They begin to go back to Bethlehem in hopes that maybe, just maybe, something's going to get better. Well, midway through the, through the road from Moab to Bethlehem, Naomi just stops and says, girls, go home. I have nothing to give you. I can't bear children. What do I have for you? Well, Orpah leaves, but, but Ruth, Ruth kind of flashes an attitude. In my mind, she's like, mm, no, 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 your God is going to be my God. Your people will be my people. Oh, I'm going to hang out with you all the way to Bethlehem. This is how it plays out in my mind. And in a patriarchal society where men owed, uh, owned everything and provided for their families, these women had nothing. In addition to this, Ruth was uh, barren. She couldn't have babies. And Naomi was too old. She couldn't get pregnant. The story goes on and we see some real life emotions that would really cause things to suck during this moment. In fact, Dr. Deb Gordon, she uh, helped write in some deep therapeutic language for the book, How to Have Your Life Not Suck. She says, as going through the book, that there is depression anxiety, PTSD, and even betrayal. So check out the reactions to this, the very human reactions that these women face. Go down to the end of chapter 1 and verse 19. So the two women went on until uh, they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman explained, can this be Naomi? Now bear with me, okay, because my mind just gets away from me. But here's Naomi back in Bethlehem. At this point, it's probably 15 to 20 years since the last time she was there. And she's like, oy vey, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. He's brought much misfortune upon my life. Now, bear with me. My love for narrative storytelling might feel different because I was raised, um, uh, well, I'm Mexican, rican so I'm Mexican and Puerto Rican. <laughs> Create my own race, friends. And, uh, 
And I used to love going to my grandma's house. She had these big oversized couches with like plastic covers that would make your legs sweat and you'd stick and squirm around. And she would pour me a cup of coffee and we would sit there and watch her shows, her soap operas. I was six and uh, sipping coffee, watching soap operas are the things that my mom told me never to do and grandma let me do it. But here's the thing, my love for narrative storytelling and soap operas might feel different for you because when I say soap operas, you're probably thinking of like General Hospital, One Life to Live, The Young and the Restless, but I'm talking about something called novelas. They're totally, completely different. Okay, so to play this out, to make the Bible come alive, in an American soap opera, a beautiful woman who looks like she attends Fresh Life <laughs> with a spelt waist and thighs that definitely don't touch, Blonde, neatly combed hair, very light, bare essentials makeup. Will look at her forlorn lover who's just broken up with her and say, but John, please don't leave me. I, I, I don't understand. Please don't go. And then in a novella, somebody comes in in a dookie booty dress, hair back home so big, something died in it and she didn't even know. She's got eyelashes so long when she blinks, you feel it through the screen and she screams, pero Juanito, no se va mi amor, por qué, por qué? No entiendo mi amor, no se va. And then someone comes in, shoots Juanito, you find out that Juanito's her secret baby daddy and you're like, oh my gosh, what happened? This is the way that I want to read the Bible, okay? I'm so tired of people saying, well, the Bible's boring. No, boo-boo, you boring, okay? So this is how I hear Naomi say, don't call me, sweetheart. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. And isn't that what happens when we feel like death has creeped in? And it's not just physical death, it's spiritual death, emotional death, maybe it's the death of a relationship, death of a dream, death of a business, death of a home, death of a marriage, death and life just sucks. My fear is that far too many spiritual people on platforms much like this, behind pulpits much like this, will say, being bitter is bad. Hebrews talks about bitterness is bad. Ephesians says a bitterness is bad. It's bad. Don't you know that all things work out for good for those who love the Lord? Listen, I understand Romans 8.28, but right now, it doesn't feel good. I'm questioning the goodness of a good God. And maybe you're on this road and you feel like your life has sucked. I want to give us some practical handles out of the book of Ruth. Number one, if you're taking note, your end just might be your beginning. My dad has said this ever since I was a child. I'm hearing it more and more. But as a child, I remember my dad saying, if you are not dead, then God is not done. And even though they didn't know their lives, though pockmarked with pain and injustice, they didn't know that God had something on the horizon for them in the same way that you don't know that God has something great on your horizon. In their loss, in their tragedy, in their ache, in their pain, they had no clue that through that, God was going to do something impossible. And through that, we today get to stand on the promise of salvation because of their sacrifice and their loss. Look at chapter two, verse one. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz, yes. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let us go to the fields and uh, let me go to the fields and pick up whatever leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I have favor. 
Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. So she went out, entered the field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. There's a lyric from Florence and the Machine. It says, it's always darkest before the dawn. These women had went back to Bethlehem without two pennies to rub together. They were childless, husbandless, and hopeless. And yet chapter 2 enters with someone new on the scene. Contrary to Malon and Kilion, whose name means sick and dying, Boaz comes onto the scene and his name means strength. Yes. That's what I'm talking about. And I want to clarify because sometimes Hebrew feels difficult. His name is Boaz, not cheap as, lying as, or beat your ass. It is Boaz, okay? In the words of salt and pepper, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. Yes, he is. Let me take a minute or two to give much respect to. Okay, we'll stop because we're in the house of God. On the brink of starvation, Ruth asked to get a job. And I love that even though her life totally sucked, she was still willing to be responsible and go to a place where otherwise would have rejected her and looked at her differently and judged her and quite possibly even hated her. I want us to pull out this powerful principle from Ruth's playbook, because when life sucks, don't quit. Get to work. And I'm not talking about the physical act of work, though that might be it. I'm talking about don't give up relationally. Don't give up spiritually. Don't give up uh, uh, ministerially. Do not give up relationally. Uh, this past year, my team and I uh, have em- embarked, actually now two years, we've embarked in going into prisons across the United States and bringing the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with hope. So shout out to Dear Lodge. And this one time, it was like our, one of our very first outreaches. We have a conference and we make it amazing. It's so awesome. And I remember this one woman, uh, she had asked me to pray with her. She'd accepted Jesus and she looked like a G. Like she was, that's a gangster for everyone at Fresh Life, okay? Uh, and she looked a little hardcore. In fact, she had a really bad reputation of fighting with everyone, fighting even so much with parole officers as well as security guards there in jail. Uh, So many people doubted when she had said yes to Jesus, but before we left, she asked me to pray with her. She had already served two of her 10-year sentence, and she was being transferred to a maximum security prison. And she said, I just want to walk with God, and I want to see my daughter again. And so we prayed, and I said, I prayed that God would put his hand of favor upon her, that she would not stray away, but fall more in love with God, and his will be done. Well, here's the thing with, with, with prison work. You don't really get to see people that you meet one time over. I thought that was really the last time I was going to see this girl. Well, I come to find out that seven days in to the maximum security prison, she was told that she was only going to have to serve one more year at the remaining eight years. And much to everyone's doubt, when she was released on a Thursday, She showed up in her local church on a Sunday, praising Jesus. But it gets better. We're going to level up with Jesus. You want to know why? She found the church that popped up first on Google. She walked in and she sat down. And guess who was sitting to her left? The security officer who she beat up, who grabbed her in her arms, hugged her, and kissed her and said, you are not my enemy. You are my sister. I'm going to show you Bridget who has been reunited with her daughter and now her granddaughter to the glory of God, which leads me to point two, you might just be one step away from stepping into the blessings of God 
Look at verse 3 again. She went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working the field belonging to Boaz. So this phrase, as it turned out, depending on your translations, I feel um, ESV, New King James, Amplified Version has a better translation. This phrase, it just so happened, has been translated in the NIV of as it turned out. But this phrase, nothing just happens, is an idiom we use to help us understand a biblical concept that God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. It's not happenstance or coincidence or chance. It's providence. I'm a rapper today. Providence is God's sovereign and benevolent control over all things. Simply put, providence encompasses every aspect of creative order. From where you parked at church to where you couldn't park at church. From the beginning to the end. From the heavens to the earth. From the animate to the inanimate. From individuals to nations. From weeds to wheat. From day to night. From catastrophe to calm everything. God is a caring God who's involved with everything. According to Baker's Dictionary of Biblical Theology, in God's wisdom, power, righteousness, and love, he is hastening slowly to work out his own eternal purposes for his glory and for our eternal good. His glory, our good. His glory, our good. His glory, our good. So the fact that we find Ruth coincidentally in a field belonging to a rich, single, distant relative. Now, to give some context, Ruth has hit rock bottom. This is like moving to Los Angeles and you broke. You're trying to scrounge up some cans to recycle to get some bucks. You're eating in a soup kitchen. You're sleeping at a homeless shelter. And the one person you know is suffering with chronic depression. I mean, what does she do? She's hard up. And I know that we all are carrying difficult things. But this woman was going through so much. So this phrase, it just so happened, is like saying, lo and behold, as luck would have it. Oh, lucky her, karma was totally on her side. Like that's the kind of language that's going on here and nowhere else in the entire Old Testament is this event described with any sort of this type of language. Why? Because it's an ironic tongue-in-cheek writing method that for a Hebrew audience, they would have understood. This is like saying, she happened to go from Moab to Bethlehem, she happened to be broke. She happened to go to work. She happened to go into the field. She happened to go in the field of Boaz. She happened to go in the field of Boaz who was uh, bougie and, and, and single and <laughs> single like a Pringle ready to mingle. Amen. Okay. This is providence. And sometimes God will work visibly. The Red Sea will part. Manna will fall. A burning bush will talk. But there's also the invisible hand of God where Ruth randomly ends up coincidentally working in the field that just so happened to belong to Boaz. You are not lost in this way. We serve a way maker. So when you have lost your way or you cannot find your way, take one step forward because you might be one step away from inheriting your blessing. This leads us to point three, the decisions you make today determine your tomorrow. 
Ruth and Naomi knew that they couldn't survive alone. They knew that they needed a plan. Now, chapter three is so full of great dating advice. We don't have time to get into that, but there is a section in the book that will explain this. But um, I'm passionate about healthy relationships and I love biblical orthodoxy and I love just going through a book verse by verse and you just get so excited. But according to law during that time, Boaz actually had legal right to absorb Naomi and Ruth if other family members chose not to. Now, they had one lunch date. It's very romantic. He asked her out to lunch. He gave her extra. She took it home. She gave it to her mother-in-law. That's a good girl right there. And single girls, take note. When a brother wants to feed you, you say yes and amen. Okay? But then Boaz ghosted her. He went like silent. And all of a sudden, it's the end of harvest season. And you know, Mama Naomi, a good meddling Jewish mother-in-law, she's like, oi, fake girl, what are we going to do? This is what you do. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 3, she says, Go, take a shower. I don't want you smelling like a goat. Take a shower, change your clothes, and put on some perfume. It's biblical, okay? It's, it's, it's literally in the Bible. So single people in the house, all the campuses and online, take some wisdom from Mama Ruth, or Mama Naomi, okay? Shower, floss your teeth, have two eyebrows, iron a shirt, okay? We don't have time to get into that. Read the book, man. But Ruth, Ruth, Listens to her mother-in-law, she goes down to the harvesting field. It's the end of the harvest season, and now it's the turn up. It's the party. God was good. The famine is lifted. So the night ends, and Ruth follows the instruction of her mother-in-law. And she goes and lays at the feet of Boaz, just as she instructed. Pick this up in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. Who are you? Boaz asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer to our family. Here's an interesting phrase that I don't want to gloss over. She knew that she had to get Boaz to marry her if she wanted to survive. But note, she did not offer her body or a favor to get what she wanted. She didn't use her body, friends, she used her brains. Ruth already heard my one-sentence purity talk. No ringy, no dingy, okay? And if you don't know what dingy is, ask Pastor Levi or your campus pastor after service. But this phrase, you're welcome, you're welcome. This phrase spread the corner of your garment over me is an idiom for marry me. Boo me up, baby. Take me as your own. You are my kinsman redeemer. You are the one that has permission to take us under your wing. Ruth knew that her life, in order for her life not to suck, she had to make some brave decisions. And guess what? If we want our life to suck, we have to make some brave decisions. The decisions you make today determine your tomorrow. But the decisions that you make today don't impact just your life. They impact the lives of generations to come. In fact, it was the third prison conference that we hosted. And the warden of the prison in Texas had called me and said, hey, we've heard about the work that you're doing. We know that you work with women. But I just feel like all these men would be able to benefit from this as well. Would you you'd be open to doing this for our men? Well, I'm an Enneagram 7. And I'm like, is it fun? Sign me up. Like, don't worry about the bill. You know, like, whatever. So I hung up the phone. I was so excited. And then it hit me. What am I going to talk to men about? So I kind of freaked out for a second, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to communicate God's word and what he's done for me, but I need to have reinforcements. So I pick up my phone, and I call my daddy, Pastor Pancho Juarez, out of a church in Los Angeles, California. I said, Daddy, would you come with me to prison in Texas? And he said, yeah, absolutely. So we were flying uh, over to Texas. We were having this conversation. We were sitting there, and he said, I think it's so ironic that we get to do this together. I said, why? He said, well, I I've been to jail not once, not twice, but I I've been to jail three times. What? what did you say, Dad? He said, yeah, I've been to jail three times. And I was like, first thought, 
no wonder I'm a G. My daddy's a G. Yeah, that's my dad. But then the holy side kicked in and I was like, won't he do it? God is a God who redeems. And together we got to preach the message of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his life, his death, burial, and resurrection. And people came to know the saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I got to stand in front of the men as a, as a, a sign of the next generation. When you decide to get your life together, when you decide to turn your life to Jesus, when you say no more to that living, no more to that addiction, no more to that chronic issues. No, I'm choosing to worship Jesus. It affects not just your life, but my life and the thousands that go to my father's church. My fear is that we're seeing a generation who are frustrated with sucky moments or sucky seasons, that in order to make their life not suck, they make dumb decisions for the now instead of the later. We see them buy a house because so-and-so got a house and they get in debt. We, we, we see them buy cars or go on fancy vacations that they charge and cannot afford, ruining their life to keep up with the Joneses. Side note, I'm a first-generation American. Who are the Joneses? <laughs> We see people sleeping with him and them and her and them, and you're like, why are you doing that? Oh, because they're so hot. I say this all the time. They may be hot, but if they don't love Jesus, so is hell. You don't need that. Don't throw away your life for something stupid. Don't look for a good weekend. Build a good legacy. This is what we're called to as a body of Christ. In chapter four, we read that Ruth's proposal a proposal was going to take place and Boaz chose her and she who could not get pregnant gets pregnant and has baby Obed. Turn with me to chapter 4 verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. A barren, widowed, outcast, pagan worshiper from Moab became a wanted wife. This is the stuff that Disney tales are made of, but it doesn't stop there. At the end of the book, there's something called the genealogy. It's basically like a Hebrew phone book. Like it's your daddy's, 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 daddy's line so that we all know the heritage and history of our family. The story didn't end with baby Bo Obed. In fact, pick this up, the final verses of chapter four. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Minadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Sal, it is Salmon, okay? I know Salmon in America, but Salmon in Hebrew. Uh, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, as in King David. Obed was King David's grandpa, but it doesn't stop there. The next time we see the name of Ruth, it's in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4, and it's in the lineage of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, from Boaz to Obed, from Obed to Jesse, from Jesse to David, from David to Jesus. Ruth is a reminder that it's not what has been dealt to you, but what you do with what's been dealt to you. And I say this as a first-generation American of Latino descent who was obese and couldn't read, write, or spell at the age of 12. I was a product of East Los Angeles, California. I would repeat the generational patterns of everyone living on the concrete jungles. But God, under-resourced and overlooked, but God, marginalized, ostracized, overlooked, but God. 
Ruth left us a legacy that I want to emulate and I want to copy. That even when life sucks, you don't have to. And this idea of biblical legacy includes our contribution to the next generation, the art that you create, the songs that you write, the children that you rear, the churches that you build, the businesses that you go into, the scientific contribution that you add, the poems that you write, the classrooms that you impact. It has a lasting effect. And Ruth knew with every decision, every trial that she overcame, every promise that she held onto, every tribulation that she withstood, she was building a foundation of faith for the next generation. Our decisions have a ripple effect on the next generation. You are creating a legacy one way or another, whether you want to or not. So the question I ask you, are you building a good legacy? And this idea of, of, of legacy isn't leaving a mansion or a million dollars for a kid. Biblical legacy is that we can find ordinary acts that we do every single day. And when placed in the hands of an extraordinary God, we will leave something beautiful in our wake. We make decisions about the now that we forget about the later. I'm going to bring the band up. And I feel like in this moment, we must hold on to the simple truth that when we give our life away, not only will we be walking in the ways of God, I dare to say that your life will be more purposeful, that your purpose will be found in this understanding that, that Ruth knew, that Jesus knew, that Paul knew, that Esther knew, that when trial and tribulation and trauma, that in the midst of that, their purpose was proven when they gave their life away, when they gave things that were so needed in their life. Ruth gave away her food so others can live. Esther gave away her power and prestige so that others can live. I love that, 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 that Paul the apostle gave up his prominence and his power so that others can find life through Jesus Christ and live. I love that Jesus gave his life up so that we can give. And if you don't want your life to suck, give your life away because you might just be one day away from stepping into the right field at the right time with the right people and letting your destiny come. So maybe you're in a season right now or you feel like, my life sucks. Guess what? I feel you. I'm with you. My heart goes out to you. We have a Savior who sees you and wants you to know, even in the suck, I'm with you. Even in the suck, I love you. Even though you feel abandoned, you're not. I am with you. And until this is redeemed, this story is not done. So maybe you are sitting there watching online or at any of the 13 campuses. I'm going to ask you to do something bold and brave. We're going to have a Naomi moment. Naomi was with the people of God when she was honest. She said, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Today is your opportunity to get real in the house of God. If you are angry, bitter, upset, and you feel like Naomi, we just be honest? Raise your hand. Your campus pastors are there. And they see you, but most importantly... Your honesty, let God acknowledge that he sees you and he's happy that you're being honest about this situation and season. We're gonna pray with you. In fact, let's pray for you right now. Spirit of God, I pray that you do a work in these hardened, bittered hearts. I thank you, Lord God, that you can remove the calluses that have built up around our hearts that are angry and caustic and bitter. And I pray, Lord Jesus, I, I wanna prophesy to the dry bones. I wanna prophesy to the dead dreams. I wanna prophesy to the loss of hope and say, breathe, O oh wind, breathe, O oh Holy Spirit, and resurrect those dreams, those hopes, those relationships for your glory and for your 
are good. We thank you, God, for each of these honest individuals, and we say, do it again. If you did it then, do it again. In the name of Jesus, we say amen and amen. And guess what? As Ruth wasn't done, you ain't done. Jesus gave his life away for you. I'm gonna ask you the most important question of the day. Are you ready to say yes to Jesus? Because I know some of y'all are living that Moab life, okay? You're doing the most for the least. Give it to God, all right? Now is the time to get right with God so that you can get tight with God. How do we do this? By letting Jesus Christ be the Lord and Savior of your life. In a moment, I'm gonna count to three. I'm gonna invite you to raise your hand to declare that you are choosing Jesus. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So one, by raising your hand, you are saying, I believe that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of my life. Two, I'm inviting the Holy Spirit to take residence inside of me. Three, I'm declaring that Jesus, Lord, is going to give a passion, a purpose, and potential for my life. So if that is you at all of the campuses, one, two, three. Shoot up your hand right now. Shoot up your hand right now. I choose Jesus. I choose Jesus. My story is not over and I am not dead. Therefore, my God is not done. We are all gonna pray together as a church this declaration of inviting Jesus to have space and real estate in our hearts. Can we all say, dear Jesus, forgive me of my sin, cleanse my conscience and renew my spirit. Today I choose you, Jesus. Fill me with your spirit to do what you have called me to do. In the name of Jesus, we all say amen and amen. What an honor and a privilege it has been to be with you. Thanks so much and God bless. Thank you so much for joining us for this message. We hope it blessed you. If you haven't yet, swing by our YouTube account, youtube.com slash freshlifechurch and follow us, subscribe there so you don't miss out on any of the action. And if you wanna bless our ministry financially for what God's doing through it and partner with us as we try and reach more people, we sure would welcome that. You can do that by clicking the give button at freshlife.church. Hope to see you soon and God bless you.